Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevla, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. I'm so honored to be hosting our second season in which we've been talking to a diverse group of thinkers, advocates, researchers, and doers, all working diligently to ensure our AI-enabled future puts people and our environment first. Today, I'm beyond excited to be joined by Kate O'Neill, the founder and CEO of KO Insights. Known as the tech humanist, Kate is a linguist, an author, and a strategic advisor committed to improving the human experience at scale. Welcome, Kate. Thank you, Kimberly. So I think we have to start by asking, how does one become a tech humanist? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's something that I have been thinking about for a few decades as I worked in and around technology, because it was always the case that I was always the, the sort of pain in the butt member of the team who was always saying, but what about the customer? But what about the user? <laughs> but what about the person who's using the thing that we're building? And, you know, people ultimately appreciate that, but they also find it, you know, a, a nuisance in the short term. So I think what I found is that there's there's a way to think about the human experience, you know, kind of the superset of all of those, the user experience, customer experience, and so on, and the way that technology can be built to um, accommodate the human experience that so that it actually makes the human experience better. And that that felt like a perspective that really wasn't being amplified enough. And so that that's been the focus of my work for several years now, including the, my second to last book, Tech Humanist. Yeah, this is awesome. And you mentioned your book. You've actually written three, Pixels in Place, The Tech Humanist, and A Future So Bright, which I just read. It was awesome. And each, I found documents a key inflection point in our evolving story or the evolving story of our relationship with technology. So will you give us an overview of the evolutionary arc that's captured in those books? Yeah, it's a really good question because I actually felt like I needed to ask myself that question as I was working on A Future So Bright. It's like the Pixels in Place was clearly about the the interconnectedness of physical and digital experiences and in fact the interconnectedness of the physical and digital world and that that world connects through our human experiences. Like everywhere that we move through the world, we are stitching together in this data mesh, you know, what those worlds know and understand about about each other. Uh, and that's so that was really intriguing to me. But but it also started to open up much bigger questions about, you know, if we have this connected world, who's creating it, who's designing it, what are the sort of responsibilities of the people who are creating those experiences. And that examination led to Tech Humanist, where it was this discussion about, you know, it's really a, a business question. Business is is generally who's creating the, the majority of human experiences. And the motives are often profitable. Centric, And so if they are, then we need to find ways to make sure that those profit motives are also aligned with good human outcomes and make sure that we can be building technology through business experiences in ways that can amplify the human experience. And so that work led to, you know, kind of a, an even bigger question, which was, you know, now that things feel like they're moving in this direction where we also just feel like we're kind of living in technology all the time, like it's in the water, it's in the air that we breathe. <laughs> um, you know, what does it mean to face 
what we think of as the future, as this future of data and emerging technology in a way that reminds us that we are empowered to create it. And so one of the big pieces, of course, as you saw reading A Future So Bright, was talking about climate change and the, the climate crisis. And that seems to be one of the uh, most urgent and important discussions that we can have uh, as a society. And a lot of it does pertain to technology and a lot of it pertains to business decisions. And so these all weave together in ways that I think don't seem really readily apparent at first, but they are, uh, you know, the kind of recurring theme, as you saw through the book, through A Future So Bright, is everything is connected. And that that is, a, I think, a really important point for us to take away from from all of those discussions is that, you know, we we are making decisions today that affect future outcomes. And we have the agency and the empowerment to do that in a responsible and forward-looking way. So I look forward to us doing that. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Now, you're a linguist, and Mm. so you're very good at language and very aware that language matters. So I want to play a little bit of of a game, perhaps, of why this and not that with full acknowledgement in advance that this may in some cases be in fundamental opposition to the both and principle you strongly and convincingly yeah. <laughs> espouse. So we'll get to that. But why human experience and not customer experience? Yeah, I mean, I think customer experience is is a valid thing. It's just that it's not the be all end all. And I feel like all of the disciplines of, you know, customer experience, user experience, patient experience, guest experience, they all provide a really useful lens on the transactionality that takes place within the context of the interactions that are being designed you know, for for the business that they operate within. But there's a bigger picture. And that bigger picture is, is a really important context to bring to that, that understanding as well, because it brings more empathy and more nuance about what people carry with them when they encounter these interactions and experiences. So we can design customer experiences. And, you know, we need to be thinking within the customer experience design sort of framework and methodologies, we need to be thinking about, you know, uh, making sure that relevant information is at hand and that we're making things frictionless and easy and, and all of the things that we do within customer experience. But then we, we also need to be able to zoom out wider to the human experience perspective and be thinking about, you know, what kind of empathetic situation can we be aware of? What what kind of baggage is someone bringing into this moment? You know, what what might be the the emotional burden that someone has when they're, you know, visiting a loved one in the hospital and trying to make sense of the hospital's map that's available on their website? Like there's there's a very big difference between, you know, designing for transactionality in that moment and designing for the true empathy of what the human experience there is. So I think there are a lot of ways that that plays out across disciplines. Yeah. And as you were talking, it strikes me that when we think about customers or users, they're recipients of as opposed to participants in in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. So this probably then leads a little bit to the next question. Why value and not profit? Yeah, so profit is a metric, right? Like it's just a it's just a ratio. It's the fact that you know you 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 took in so much and it cost you so much. And that that for some reason has become this all, you know, all influential metric that everyone seeks. And it's a it's a very useful metric. You know, it, it indicates healthiness in a company's operations. But it doesn't tell you everything. It doesn't tell you whether you actually delighted someone, whether they were happy to sort of give you their money in the end and whether they would come back and do it again if they had the choice to. And so I think there's a a bigger question of 
you know, where are we actually solving human problems? And how could we do that in a way that is more understanding of what is meaningful to the people who are interacting with us at that moment? So, you know, understanding meaning is a key to understanding value. And I think once we get there, once we get to that point where we know that there's a, there's a problem that someone has and we are empowered to help solve it, then we're truly understanding value. That leads right into profit, by the way, you know, in general, um, you know, these kinds of businesses that that create meaningful and valuable experiences tend to create Mm -hmm. profitable ones too. I just think that having that profit be in the front of that discussion is kind of the tail wagging the dog. And we need to be much more focused on the human aspects of that than on the, the pure raw ratio metrics of it all. And I want to come back to that topic of meaning, but first I have to ask the the last, why this, not that. Why optimism and not utopia or even dystopia? Yeah, so it's funny. I think of optimism is a term and a concept that I think gets really maligned. And uh, it, it's been, been understood to be this very naive kind of principle. And I, I, in my mind, it is actually possible that, that optimism can be naive. But my object in A Future So Bright is to present the idea of strategic optimism, which is to say that you look for the best possible outcomes and you design a plan to get there. And so that's why not dystopia or utopia either, because this this dichotomy of dystopia versus utopia is all that we've really been given in culture, in sort of literature and science fiction to think about the future. Like this is a very limited and unhealthy and unuseful framework to think about the future. It reduces us to victims in our own future, as opposed to reminding us that actions have consequences and we make decisions, we make actions and those affect the outcomes. Of course, we're affected by other people's decisions and actions too, but we have a lot more agency than our discourse about the future would suggest. So I think it's really important that we bring that optimistic but strategic perspective to it. Yeah, this feels so important, especially right now, where we're at a time where it seems to be more and more in fashion, you know, in vogue to sort of hold or acknowledge one idea and one idea only or one opinion and one idea, right? Come hell, high water, facts, data, science, or common sense, what have you. So the idea of of one of the things that you talk about with strategic optimism and this idea that it's not about rose-colored glasses and it's not just about leaning into the bad is we have to learn to hold multiple, often opposing ideas and, and be able to think about those at once. And I started to think about this as almost taking a quantum view, if you will. It almost feels in today's discourse like a heresy. So can you give some examples of why that mindset's so critical in light of these very complicated issues we're addressing both with and due to technologies such as AI? Yeah, I think it's really important, especially when it comes to technologies like AI, because I think we we have to be able to recognize that there are true risks and harms with with emerging technologies like AI, uh, that the power that these technologies have and the capacity that they have means that they can amplify and scale our biases as well as our values. And that can happen so fast and it can happen in such a dramatic way. While at the same time, we acknowledge that there's tremendous power and capacity for scaling good. And, you know, I I have a whole section I'm sure you saw in the book. I talk about the, you know, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the ways that artificial intelligence in particular can be deployed to solve against any one of those 17 goals. And that to me is 
tremendously exciting. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a both and for sure. We, we have to very much acknowledge the very real harms and risks, uh, particularly harms that, that are happening upon certain communities of people. In many cases with things like facial recognition and other surveillance technology, it's black and brown communities. Uh, and, and that th- we have to be very careful to really truly acknowledge that and work toward reducing those harms by also by involving people from those communities, affected people, and having them be part of the leadership and the discussion about how these technologies and how these programs actually roll out. Uh, that's an incredibly important aspect of it. And we also need to be looking for, hey, what's the ways in which this can actually solve problems and we can deploy these technologies so that they, they can use the capacity that they have. There's things like you know, optimizing wind farms so that they can be more efficient and uh, stopping human trafficking. And there's just so many programs that that roll out that that AI actually helps with. So it would be impossible to categorize AI as good or bad. You know, it, it is simply the case that we have to be very disciplined about how we use it and having this both and mindset, this, this flexibility of mind that can allow us to recognize when it is in a position of, of making harmful unintended consequences and when it is in a position of bringing good to the world and scaling that good, that's where where I think we can do the most good. Are we good at taking those and having those conversations and taking those positions today and then <laughs> sort of bringing those to, to real life? And what can we do to, to better encapsulate that mindset? I mean, I think that there are there are lots of people who are working around this space, right? There's a, the responsible tech movement, for example, and the AI ethics movement is burgeoning. I, I know of an awful lot of people who are moving into that space. I know of a lot of very, very credible scholars and academics in the, and around that space. Um, there are a lot of very trustworthy voices out there around this. So, so I think that that in that regard we have the opportunity to be very good at this. But yeah, I mean, to, to your, I think, more implied point, sure, like <laughs> I, socially and societally, um, we have tended to have some difficulty with nuanced discussions. And I think that that's, that's a shame. And it's something that probably it's not a mystery to think that social media has, you know, mm-hmm. divided or further made that difficult because of the divisive polarity of the experience in social media. And we've been hearing that a lot um, this past week with the the whistleblower from Facebook and the discussions about, you know, the algorithms amplifying certain kinds of content. And we know this already, though. We really didn't need the whistleblower, <laughs> although it's wonderful to have that information. But I write about this in the book that we know that certain algorithms on social media amplify for certain kinds of engagement, like outrage. We know that the anger reaction, for example, on Facebook is going to tend to get you more of the same kind of content that you reacted angrily to because anger is a very engaging emotion. Um, So we know this, and I think this is just a matter of really kind of doubling down on uh, media literacy and digital literacy for people. We need programs that can actually get people savvier about the ways that they engage with content online. We, we need to have programs that are much more in touch with the realities of what we, what we really encounter when we spend time online. But I, I think that there's, there is hope uh, they're in the form of those scholars and academics and people working in the space. And I think we have some work to do for sure. Yeah, and your comments right there also remind me of something I think you you have said and others as well, that it's so much 
easier somehow to lean into anger and to lead into rage or to be pessimistic or realistic. And that, as you said, optimism is actually quite hard for something that people think is sort of soft and squishy. This is a really hard concept. Now, someone could say, well, you're really just trying to have it both ways, right? You're, you're trying to say it's really good and it's really bad and, and that's sort of all okay, right? Or trying to play both sides. But how is this idea of being able to look at things comprehensively and acknowledge that things can be good and bad and, and there's truths on both sides of that different than sort of this both-sidedism that is out there as well? Yeah, so I, I talk about in the book that both-sidedism is uh, is a really disturbing trend that's very different from both and. Because what both sidesism assumes is that if you make one statement, that by default, the opposite of it must be acceptable or must be true. And it's not generally the case. There are many, many sides to many truths. And I think that, you know, our, our innate human understanding tells us that that must be true, that there are often uh, more than one way to tell and experience a truth. Um, but that doesn't mean that if I say the world is round, that that means that the world must also be flat because we're accepting all truths here. <laughs> so we, we need to allow for a certain amount of um, reckoning with scientific fact and, or at least, you know, accepted scientific knowledge and, and the, the scientific consensus. So we can see this play out in the pandemic. We can see this play out in uh, a lot of the misinformation and disinformation issues that are, that are out there. And we can see it play out around the, uh, the tech space as well. So I think, you know, we, we just have some work to do to make sure that we're, we're learning and unlearning the right kinds of, of approaches to, to nuance and, and how to respect one another's viewpoints, but not necessarily, and not necessarily set up this false approach that just because this thing is true, then inherently it implies the opening of this opposite space. And that has equal, uh, equal truth to this thing that has the scientific consent, the consensus of all of the respected scientists in the world. That's not how that works. So both and is never supposed to be about that. Both and is about the idea that, you know, we, we have ways to approach the tools and technologies that we face and, and the, the challenges that we face with the resources that we have that can offer us plenty of, of forward paths, that can offer us a way forward that is bright and better. And we also re have to recognize that there are there are harms that come with some of those things. So rolling out uh, facial recognition, for example, in communities where accuracy is a question and where, uh, you know, you have white supremacy, you have systemic racism, for example. Uh, there are cases, many, many cases of criminal justice uh, misfires, you know, where facial recognition information is making it from surveillance technologies all the way into criminal court proceedings without there being uh, really any credibility to the, the fact that mm -hmm. the person who's being cited as as uh, indicated in the in the image is really that person so we don't, we just don't have we don't have nearly enough teeth around the uh, the ordinances and the regulations of of those tools and technologies we have a lot more to do where that's concerned um, but but I think this both and area is is a really important framework for us to just be able to recognize the harms and the good that come from these technologies yeah and another I suppose learning 
I've had and I, or we've we've collectively had, especially as we've had a lot of these conversations um, on the podcast and otherwise, is, is this perspective too, is a lot of what you're looking into is is identifying what the future the future that we want it to be. And and that in a lot of cases is a break from the past. And so a lot of these technologies lean on data from the past. And so we really have to think critically, I think, sometimes about is that actually what I want to project, you know, and is it possible to do it in the, in this way? Yeah, I mean, the bias exists not only in uh, algorithms, which is, I think, where a lot of people talk about algorithmic bias, mm-hmm. but we know that we're also talking about bias in data sets and where we are talking about bias in the very existence of the job roles that have created the data sets and the, the algorithms. So we have to unpack a lot of that all the way down this kind of supply chain of, of how this stuff was created. And we need to know that, you know, we're probably never going to unpack all of that, but we have to be thinking about how do we mitigate the risk and how do we mitigate the harms? Some of that has to do, you know, there's some really interesting innovation I'm sure you've seen around um, AI that can actually attempt to unpack the, the biases in other AI. And so having this kind of discourse and having this kind of this challenge out there where we can use technology to actually try to improve technology. I think that's an an interesting way forward. That will be interesting. And I think that balance, again, of for those of us particularly that are technologists to not fall into the techno-solutionism trap as well, which Uh is technology can certainly help us with technology, but it may not solve all of those pieces. Now, you mentioned innovation. And way back up front in this conversation, you mentioned the importance of meaning. So can you talk about why an emphasis or more of a focus on really defining meaning can help us as individuals and and organizational entities power greater innovation? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite topics within all of the work that I've done in the last few decades is I've been a fan of and student of the concept of meaning for decades. Uh, Since I was a kid, really, I think the first time it dawned on me was I was um, fascinated with languages. I I was studying Spanish on my own and French on my own. And I liked the idea that, you know, you could take a book and it would be a book but also it could be a book or a libra or a libro or whatever. And the fact was that there was still that object, but it had all these different words that applied to it. And that made me really think about the the separation between the thing itself and the way we talk about it and, and what did that mean about the way we talked about it. And so that's pretty deep thoughts for, I guess, a you know seven or eight year old or whatever. <laughs> But it led into a lifelong obsession with meaning. And so now I I think about meaning as truly one of the most, if not the most, foundational of human constructs. I think that it is what makes humans human, that we are so obsessed with meaning. We're meaning seekers. We're meaning makers. We crave meaning. We thrive on meaning. You know, we puzzle it out everywhere we go. And I think, you know, you got to think about meaning as this kind of scaffolding from semantics, like I was just talking about, up through, you know, sort of relevance and truth and patterns and purpose and significance and all the way out to the most macro uh, existential and cosmic, you know, sort of big picture questions of what's it all about and why are we here? And when you think about like all those different kind of layers of meaning, I think it's really fascinating that you can all take, take all of them and condense them back down to this question of what matters. Like in every part of those discussions, you're really asking some kind of question about 
what matters. Meaning is always about what matters. And then when you apply that to innovation and you think about technology and how we're going to solve the problems of tomorrow, it really can be thought of in this incredibly human-centric way by using that same lens of meaning and saying innovation is about what is going to matter. And that may seem really simple in words, but when you actually use that lens and start to think about what matters today and what's going to matter tomorrow and this meaning and innovation sort of framework, it gives you the opportunity, I think, to really align the way you're thinking about the trends that lead up to this moment and what that trajectory looks like going forward and how you can bring resources together and how you can, you know, kind of make sure that your business focus and your your resource focus are pointed in the direction that are going to make the most impact, that are going to have the most meaningful impact. So that's an incredible set of tools, I think, for for people to be able to look look through. So it sounds like this is a method to to build a bridge between what can seem like fairly conceptual or sometimes soft or or just a little bit fuzzy human centric goals and business strategy, right? Which is very concrete and something to do. So is, is that true? And is there an example you could give of of how that helps us mind those gaps? Well, I think the the example that always comes to mind. Yes, I think that's true. I I think that's why for me the the um the term strategic optimism has so much resonance because uh, I I I have been lumped in with futurists a lot in in my <laughs> last several years of work, and I don't I don't resent it. I don't mind it. It's a it's a lovely I think compliment, but. I don't really think of myself so much as a futurist as I think of myself as a strategist, an experienced strategist, and one who spends a lot of time on insights and foresight. Um, what I think is interesting as an example of what you're talking about and tying together these kind of human-centric, human experience discussions that, as you say, can be sort of philosophic or abstract with business strategy, which, you know, also can be kind of philosophic and abstract at times. Um, there is a, uh, a favorite example, a favorite story of mine from back when I was at Netflix in the early days uh, when it was like 2000 or so. And we were still in all out bloody battle with Blockbuster. <laughs> uh, uh, still, still the upstart, still, you know, no, no guarantee that we were going to emerge victorious from this whole thing. Uh, and Reed Hastings was already investing a certain amount of research and development dollars into what were then called set-top boxes, you know, the predecessor to streaming <laughs> as we know it. Uh, and, and that didn't come out. Roku as a standalone device didn't come out until 2006. And the dedicated streaming plan on Netflix didn't come out until 2007. So you have six, seven years of anticipatory foresight, that strategic planning of re-diverting R&D money toward the next thing. You know, no, with no guarantee we're going to win the here and now battle, he's already investing in how do we make sure we're prepared to be on top of the next battle, the next innovation. And I just, I find that to be uh, one of the most inspiring stories that I've ever had the opportunity to observe firsthand and, and to really take with me and, and share with leaders uh, often. And, and I think that what, what resonates for me about that is it re very much is the what matters and what's going to matter lens. It's the one eye mm -hmm. on the now, one eye on the distant future. But it also connects the reality of you got to be led by 
what it is you think that your business actually does, not by the technology. If he was led by the technology or the operations of the business, then we would be still renting DVDs or Netflix. Not we. I left there a long time ago, <laughs> but they would still be renting DVDs. Mm-hmm. And obviously what they what they existed to do was to provide entertainment to people at home. And the way to do that was going to change. And he could see that that, that you know, they, the leadership could see that that, that was going to change. So I think, you know, I, I've, I've just in the last couple of weeks, I've been doing keynotes with um, uh, financial organization leaders and leaders in the healthcare space and so on. And it, it's very interesting to, to translate these kinds of insights across industries and think about digital transformation and think about how COVID has changed the digital transformation landscape. But fundamentally, it's the same story. It's the same, you know, one eye on the now, one eye in the future. And how do you make sure you're rallying your resources to to solve for what the business or what the organization exists to do and not be led by technology, not be, you know, uh, letting technology dictate what it is that you're offering up into the marketplace? Yeah, very important. And once again, I think you're pointing to we can't just sort of get look through one lens or take one perspective. It's multiple perspective, multiple lenses. Another area I've heard you speak about that, and I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about this, is being able to look at this at the micro and macro scale of people, right? So when we're thinking about how do we engage or product or service and and, or what it is that we're trying to achieve, thinking about both the human and humanity, why is that important? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think COVID was a real uh, clarifying lens for me on this too, that when in the majority of my work, I feel like I've been focused on the humanity level. Like that's, that's kind of what it feels like I get hired to do is, is help, Mm -hmm. help companies, help leaders think about solving problems at scale and, you know, thinking about how humanity is affected by emerging technology and that, that sort of level of abstraction. But when we got to the beginning of COVID, uh, it really felt like there was so much disruption to people's everyday experience. And there was so much uh, upheaval and so much anxiety about it, that really it was became abundantly clear to me really quickly that what I needed to do was focus on the human level, the very, very real, in the moment, human level of what the suffering was and what the problem was and what the need was. And so reaching out to my clients and my associates and and just figuring out like how can I be helpful to you right now? Like what what can we do to make sure that you're okay for the next weeks, months, whatever. And how, how can we make sure that you feel good about this transition? Because, you know, a lot of us from keynote speakers to, you know, the, the event industry overall to you know, obviously uh, healthcare, obviously education, you know, so many industries had to pivot so hard, so fast. And it, it was, uh, it threw everything into a tailspin. So really thinking about, you know, like, yes, we can, we can talk about the digital transformation discussion. We can talk about how we're going to operationalize some of this, this uh, pivoting that that's happening, but also I want to make sure that you're okay, right? Like, I just want to make sure that you as a person and your family in your home are going to be okay today and tomorrow and next week. And, and that, I think that, I think a lot of people experienced that. I I get the impression Mm -hmm. that we, many of us, got to feel the very real, urgent sense of that. Uh, And and I think that that's a a really good lens to bring to our work when we're thinking about human experience and digital transformation and big picture strategy 
it's it helps to think about it in a really big scale because we want to make sure that we're set up for scale. We want to make sure that we're set up to do things at the most, you know, a kind of po- macro level possible. But we also need to be able to do that zoom in, zoom out and make sure that the, the actual humans, the actual people who are part and parcel of those discussions, that they're OK, that they're on board, that they have, you know, there's a lot of cultural problems and, and cultural resistance that comes along with digital transformation. And that's one of the things that we can take away from this is to remember to check in with our colleagues and with our clients when when we're dealing with big, massive change and transformation. People need to be able to adjust and adapt to the new landscape, the new reality. So I think it's a, I think it's a very um, empathizing and humanizing kind of experience to, to be reminded that we, we can't only talk about the biggest scale and the most abstract, you know, kind of most ambitious outcomes. We also have to make sure that we're getting back to that really specific uh, one-on-one human experience as well. And and just another great example of the both and concept and principle, right? Thinking about both the collective and the individual and assessing both of those views, I think helps us get to to smarter decisions and, and better thinking about what the future really looks like because we're not going to optimize necessarily one um, at the expense of the other. Exactly. Like one doesn't substitute or su- supersede the other. We can't we can't say like, oh, OK, now we're only going to do one on one human level experience strategy like that won't work. We have to be able to to have the the agility and the, the mental clarity to be able to to do that exercise of going back and forth between one level and the other. Now, in that vein, you encourage people to spend more time thinking critically about the implications if things go wildly right at scale, as opposed to just thinking about what might go, what might happen if this goes wrong. And it feels almost counterintuitive. Yeah. But it does echo something David Ryan Polgar recently said to us, which is many of the unintended consequences with AI have been a failure of imagination. So can you talk to us about... What happens when we don't spend enough time thinking about the implications about about being wildly successful? Yeah, yeah. I think this is this is one of those things that once I explain it to people, a lot of the time people kind of almost do this like forehead slap <laughs> and go like, wow, I can't believe we haven't been having that conversation. In many organizations, most organizations I have found, when you're starting a, a new project or program, there's often this period of thinking about like, what are the risks? What could go wrong? And, you know, you document those and you plan for those. And that's good. I mean, you need to have that. But we also don't, in many cases, talk about, okay, what if this goes really, really right? And it goes so crazy successful that it takes our (laughs) servers down. What if it goes so well that um, we have trouble with our existing vendors and suppliers and we need to make sure that we've got a backup of those? What if it goes so well that, um, you know, people are trying to sign up for the the system and they can't get in? there's, There's just, there's any number of ways that it's it's kind of a what could go wrong, but it's a what could go wrong in the lens of what could go right. While it's going so right, you have to be prepared for the possibility that that things go wildly successful. And I think that 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 is probably it probably feels like like fantasy to to many people when they're at that moment. But things happen, you know, things take off, and oftentimes some of the the most 
catastrophic outcomes have been from just not as as David Ryan Folgar, one of my favorite people, said as you as you said yeah. there, uh, from that failure of imagination, from from thinking, from failing to think about like let's say you're launching a a food product and. Uh, suddenly Whole Foods decides they want to carry it in all 300 or whatever of their stores. And now you've got a scale problem. (laughs) It's a delightful world-class scale problem and good for you, (laughs) but it's still a scale problem. And if you you think from the beginning, gosh, you know, we got to be prepared for that moment when Whole Foods decides to pick us up. Let's make sure that we are familiarizing ourselves with all of the suppliers and distributors that we're going to need to know when we get to that point. Let's make sure that we understand how we're going to quickly ramp up our production, how we're going to do all the things that it takes. And on the on the AI side, it's exactly the same. It's It's thinking about how the little decisions that we sometimes encode because we're we're trying to get things done quickly and we're trying to, you know, kind of sloppily put something together just to see if it works, sort of um, rough it together. Some of those things accidentally end up sticking around through production and we end up unintentionally scaling uh, something that wasn't very well thought out. And sometimes those can be um, intake forms and questionnaires or, you know, when, when you have uh, people who have to sign up for something and uh, the onboarding process hasn't been particularly well thought out. It's not an experience that really reflects what's meaningful and valuable to the company who's creating this thing. Uh, it's not the experience pe- they want people to have. Or the uh, the ways in which you... Uh, so think about Clubhouse, for example. This is one that's really fun. When when Clubhouse was really hitting its its first big growth inflection at the beginning of this year... And at the time that it was like 10 invitations, I think, that that everybody had, but you could only send those invitations if you shared your entire phone uh, address book with the app. And the privacy risk implications of that are obviously tremendously huge that, you know, no no one who has any concept of of data privacy should want to share um, just flat out share their entire address book with with a, an unproven app. And so sure enough, they, they finally disconnected that. But those are the kinds of, of decisions that once they reach a certain level of scale, there are implications in terms of data risk. There are implications in terms of, you know, breaches and, and the liability that the company takes on for themselves. But it's also just an a cue to the to the users, a cue to the people who are using the system that say, you know, we don't trust you to, to with these invitations. We we don't we're not feeling generous enough about them that we just want to let you invite people. We're asking right. you to make this trade in return. That's a really unfair and unreasonable request. And so I think that those are the kinds of things that probably people just don't think about. But if you do think from the standpoint of like, well, if there's a lot of people using the system. What's it going to mean for us if we have this in place? So I think there's all kinds of ways we can we can challenge ourselves to think like that. Yeah, and certainly pl- plenty of examples of perhaps if we had thought a little more about that in social media in particular is probably the most uh, pervasively obvious one now about, well, what if this does become the primary way people engage right. or the primary or sole way they they get, you know, form opinions news. or get their news? Yeah. Um, what does that mean? And, and maybe having some of those conversations earlier might have informed a slightly different approach or maybe will moving forward. Now, you've been an advisor uh, for a long time. Um, I have been as well. And years ago, we used to talk about change management as a discrete process. It had a start and an end point. <laughs> you were trying to get an entity from A to B. 
Uh, today, I think we speak more of managing change as an ongoing practice. And indeed, habituating to change <laughs> is a key pillar of your brighter model. Mm-hmm. So in an era where, again, changing your mind is often perplexingly seen as a negative, how do we normalize the idea of habituating to change? And why is this important for individuals and organizations? Yeah, I think it is, as you say, it's just the, the, the norm that we're in right now, that things are changing for us so fast. There, there was a stat that I was quoting for a while, and I think it's out of date by now, but it, even just a couple of years ago, uh, 70 to 80 percent of CEOs felt like the next three to five years were going to bring about more change than the past 50 years had. Um, and again, that I was quoting probably two or three years ago, and I would imagine it's it's uh, irrelevant now. I mean, we probably have to accelerate even the timeline of that statistic. I think we all just kind of feel it. We feel the rapidity of change. We feel the accelerating sense that, uh, you know, climate change, for example, cli- the climate crisis, uh, anyone who's been really paying attention for the last few decades has seen these kind of benchmarks happening and, and, the, and the movement and the progress of the, the warming indicators and the, 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 the things that climate scientists pointed out were going to happen started happening. And um, so, so it's not a surprise, but I think to the, the general public, the, the sense has been, we still have time, people are going to handle it, leaders are going to step up. And I think to see what's happening where we've reached such a tipping point where um, th- we're starting, I think that the general public is beginning to be more aware of this sense that we cannot set certain things back. There are, there are things we can do to make sure that we minimize the, the harm that's coming. Mm-hmm. But from this point forward, there are certain things that are unfixable. And that means that we're going to continue to see accelerating change, accelerating catastrophe and climate emergencies around the world, as we've been seeing more and more uh, with with more frequency in the last few years, wildfires, uh, hurricanes, floods, and so on. So I think even that alone, you know, because it happens in the world we actually can live in and observe and you know witness and sense, I think that feels like the most the most obvious harbinger of this constant change. But then I think also the the whole sense of automated intelligence and what that means for the future of work and jobs, and of course with COVID shaking up the entire job landscape and work landscape Mm -hmm. and what does the future of the workplace look like and what does it mean to have these remote and distributed teams and how is that going to change the way that we we go back or don't go back or what's that I just think we're we're in a moment where everything feels so in flux and everything is happening uh with such change in in the landscape that it probably it just feels like it behooves us to get used to the idea that we there are are certain things that we can ground ourselves in and that those are the things that matter those are the things that are are meaningful our realities our relationships with other people you know the value that we bring uh that we understand about what we bring um those are things that i think are are more timeless and that we can anchor our our understandings in but the externalities are likely to keep changing And I think we need a level of adaptability that's going to keep us healthy and flexible with that, those externalities changing around us. We can still very much bring value in a world where more and more automation is happening in the workplace. 
Um, we're, it's not like we're not going to need human value. It, that seems like an incredibly unlikely outcome anytime soon. So I think that's the, the, the way I anticipate or I, I'd like to see people adopt this habituating to change is with a mindset of, of, you know, sort of anchoring in what matters and in the things that we can really feel attached to, which are the human values and, and the, the human relationships that we have. Everything else, I think we have to accept as, uh, if not ethereal, <laughs> then at least, you know, subject to a certain amount of evolution and revolution. And that that is just going to be, I think, increasingly the case. Well, I think that's amazing. And I was actually going to ask what sort of a final thought you'd like, like to leave with individuals. But I think that was it. Um, that was really amazing. And I I want to thank you really for making optimism, I think, not just acceptable, but strategic. And adopting this stance might be one of the most concrete steps we can individually and collectively take to architecting the best future for all. And as I think I said to you off mic earlier on, you've converted at least one previously self-professed realist into becoming a strategic optimist. So thank you. I'm so glad. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on this discussion. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you, Kate. I don't think we could have asked for a better note on which to end our second season. So if you've missed any of our stellar guests this season or last, or want to revisit a new favorite such as Kate, uh, now is the time. We'll be back soon with more ponderings on the nature of AI. So subscribe now so you don't miss it. Cheers. Cheers.